Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have a special interview for you with Boris Draliuk. Boris is a literary translator, poet, and the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literature from UCLA, where he taught Russian literature for a number of years. He has also taught at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. His work has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker, the London Review of Books, the Guardian, and other journals. He is the author of many books and is a wonderful translator and has won many prizes for his work. His new book is called My Hollywood and Other Poems, which was published earlier this year. It is a collection of lyric meditations on the experience of immigrants in Los Angeles. In forms ranging from ballads to vignettes to Onigen... My Hollywood draws on the poet's own life as a Jewish immigrant from the Soviet Union, honors the vanishing traces of the city's past, and in crisp and evocative translations, summons the voices of five Russian poets who spent their final years in L.A., including the composer, who we talk quite a bit about, Vernon Duke. Our conversation here is focused around Russian history in Los Angeles, but also Russian immigration, the war in Ukraine, where to get the best Russian food in Los Angeles, and much more. Please enjoy our wonderful conversation and buy his equally wonderful book. Today we're going to talk about Russians in Los Angeles. And um, I say those words um, in part to uh, <laughs> to set up our discussion about why they're complicated. I often think about categories like that in terms of, you know, the word um, India, for example, or the word Hindus. Um, mm -hmm. And those two words come from the Indus River, which is, you know, the people that were entering the subcontinent of India crossed the Indus River. And so then they refer to everyone there as the people from across the Indus River. And so uh, outsiders often will define terms and then those terms stick, you know, because India mm -hmm. is the term that we use nowadays. Read a great book on uh, the history of Russia a while ago. I'm forgetting the author's name. It's called Russia and the Russians. You know, it complicated the picture for me about uh, who we talk about when we're talking about Russians. I guess to start before we jump in, because we haven't really, other than our episode on Fort Ross, we really haven't talked about uh, Russia in California all that much. But let's let's start by defining um, what we mean when we're talking about Russian immigrants to California. Sure, that's that's an excellent way to start. And that book by Jeffrey Hosking is is a very good one. I think I, I also recommend it for this particular background. I would say that we tend to use Russian as shorthand for all immigrants from either the former Russian Empire or from its inheritor state, the Soviet Union. What bound many of these people together was a shared history, a, an imperial history, uh, as well as a common language. Even if they did speak another language at home, let's say Ukrainian, uh, in some cases Belarusian, in some cases uh, Yiddish, and any number of languages, the, the lingua franca was, was Russian. So I, I've come to prefer the term Russophone, but of course that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily as Russian. And uh, to give you a sense of my own history, we immigrated 
from the former Soviet Union in 1991. I was eight years old. I came from a Russian-speaking family. So for the next 10 to 20 years of my life, I, I got used to being called a Russian, uh, although I didn't really think of myself as Russian. My my hometown, Odessa, is in Ukraine, what is now Ukraine, have always been more of an Odessan than anything else. Mm. But uh, for, for simple ease of communication, I really didn't object when people called me Russian, although it it, it, it did cause a little bit of an identity crisis internally, but a very light one. Of course, uh, in, in the light of the current war uh, in Ukraine, that identity crisis is a much more serious one. It's, it's uh, um, exacerbated by um, what we're seeing. Is it similar to calling someone European in some ways? Because there's all these kind of sub-regions within, within the former Russian Empire. Less painful, I think, for, for um, those who are not Russian, who don't define themselves as Russian, to be called European. Uh, you know, the, uh, Europe is not a, a totalitarian state, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, although it has a huge imperial history. It, it's individual states within Europe that uh, claimed their empires. So, you know, it, it would be a little bit more like calling... Uh, the complication is that Russia was a contiguous empire, largely, not entirely, but largely. Um, but it would be like calling a person from Jamaica English, uh, that kind of thing, or an, an Indian, for that matter. For some people, that that is, uh, you know, as much of a of, of a burden um, as it is for former colonies of of uh, England and former colonies of France and Belgium and other places. So we're seeing a very late. I think, awakening in the West to the reality of Russian colonialism. And so that this is why the term has become um, all the more painful for some. Even if you're, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to say it, pronounce his name correctly, but one of my favorite Russians, I'm doing air quotes, writers is uh, Gogol. Um, yes. And he was born in Ukraine, but then migrated to Moscow. And so then, and lived, I believe, most of the rest of his life there ironically writing about Ukraine, but living in Moscow. And so it's, so these mm-hmm. kind of identities, you know, you can talk about place of origin, but you can also talk about, you know, where, where you spent most of your time and then that can, those things can conflate and mix. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Gogol is a perfect example of, a, of an imperial subject uh, in a way who identified with, with the empire because he wanted to make a, a name for himself. And it was impossible uh, in his time, really, uh, to make that kind of name uh, while writing in Ukrainian, as his father did, for instance. So he did go to Petersburg. He did write about, you know, the reality of imperial Russia uh, very critically, obviously, uh, although his intent was to sing the praises of Russia uh, and, and to glorify it. His actual attitude leaked through. But the, the career was made on stories of Ukraine, uh, written in Russian that was inflected by Ukrainian realia, re, re, the reality of Ukrainian life, and um, very much imbu- infused and imbued with the spirit of of Ukraine. So you 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 put your finger right on it. It's a mixed identity and a, a complicated identity that, in a way, embodies the the long struggle um, of Ukrainians to. Um, you know, find a way in the world with this gigantic empire uh, looking over their shoulders. And let's talk about uh, immigration to the United States, because that would be our next kind of subject. And there, there's a series of migrations um, in doing my research. It, it seems like there's one that kind of spanned the period before uh, World War I. Uh, there's obviously the migration that happened um, after the Bolshevik Revolution in the 20s to the 30s. There's the post-World War 
uh, mm -hmm. immigration, and then there's the one from the the 70s to the present. Um, can you talk a little bit about these periods of immigration and what was the push and pull? I, I, I mean, I understand partly uh, the stuff that happened after 1920, but the immigrations that happened from the 1880s to 1914, I, I, I have a less of an understanding of that uh, push. Oh, sure. It is a fascinating uh, story. You know, Los Angeles is a relatively new town. In fact, it's about the same age as, as Odessa, a little younger even. And the population only began to grow uh, toward the end of the 19th century. It only began to get up on its feet as a major metropolis in the 1920s. But Russians were present from virtually from the very start, uh, especially especially after 1905. The largest movement of Russians to the United States before the uh, revolution of 1917, this is not Russian Jews, but people who ethnically identified as Russians, happened um, uh, around the time of the 1905 revolution and the Russo-Japanese War, uh, which was a, a devastating blow to, to Russia in, in, in many ways, to the imperial force of, of Russia in many ways, um, the loss in, in that war. Uh, the people who left were seeking religious freedom they were sectarians, members of breakaway groups from the Russian Orthodox Church who followed uh, their own theologies, ideologies, lived in very close-knit communities and communities that, that had traditionally been persecuted by, by the state, which was one and the same as the church. The church belonged to the state and the state in, in a way belonged to the church. And so um, these people were... were um, living in, in fairly dire circumstances and, and were seeking freedom and uh, came to the United States as so many other religious minorities came in search of that freedom and settled in Los Angeles. They were, the numbers were in the thousands. They, it wasn't a massive population, three, four, maybe 5,000. But considering how low the population of Los Angeles was to begin with, they were a, a marked minority that you could, you could see them in East you, LA, identify sorry. them. Sorry to interrupt, but how do you classify or, or do these uh, religious uh, sects still exist or what uh, do we have terms for for what those are those just considered derivations of uh, Russian Orthodox or do they have different terms to identify them. Definitely. They have different terms in the way that, you know, we have the Quakers and the Shakers uh, in the other part of the world. And in Russia, we had the Molokans, uh, who are the milk drinkers, Molokanya, and you had the Duhabors and a variety of other sects. It was the Molokans and the Duhabors who uh, are known to have settled in Los Angeles. And many of them built uh, pretty thriving communities. They had businesses that in which they specialized, like laundries and candy factories. But as always happens, or nearly always happens, with religious communities living in total freedom, the children were less faithful than the parents, there was intermarriage, there were various other conflicts between ethnic groups. In fact, some people say that the first street gangs in Los Angeles were the children of these Russian sectarians, if you could believe it. And uh, eventually the, the, the communities either blended in or moved elsewhere to keep their integrity. So this was the first wave of, of Russian immigration, a kind of little known wave, although people have written about it. There, there, was, there was a sociological study in 1918 by a woman named Lillian Sokolov who studied this community, and, and we have that interesting time capsule that we can look at anytime we want to. Yeah, that's little known to me. I mean, I think the the intellectual and political migrations, you know, I'm thinking of someone like Stravinsky or thinking of that kind of that kind of immigrant that's kind of escaping totalitarianism is kind of what more comes to mind. But that's interesting to know. 
I mean, it's it's similar. These are these are push factors more than pull factors, right? Absolutely, a, a little bit of both. The, the pull factor being the promise of freedom, mm. uh, which also brought, of course, uh, the wave of the next wave of immigration, which is officially called the first wave: people fleeing uh, the Bolsheviks and uh, the nascent Soviet power. The term is white immigrants or white. <laughs> I don't. I don't yes. I'm, not, I'm not sure which term is used anymore appropriately. I think white the white immigration is a is a pretty appropriate term for it. Okay. Um, the, the, this whole time I'm I'm you know uh, speaking about I'm speaking about these Russians. It was really around this time that you saw people immigrating from other parts of the Russian Empire that uh, was collapsing and reshaping into the Soviet. Uh, Soviet Union, which didn't really consolidate until you know the the early to mid 1920s, the people who were fleeing were in one way or another those who had made a life for themselves before 1917 and now saw that life as as uh, either shattered or impossible to to keep up. So um, some of them fled at great peril. Some of them managed to. Uh, escape while on tour. Uh, a number of musicians and and uh, other literary figures also uh, were able to find their way out uh, by those means, and the, they just kept coming. I mean, uh, the the numbers are are fairly staggering uh, for the time. Uh, the estimates are that between nine hundred thousand to two million people from the Russian Empire fled um, in the days of the civil war uh, that followed the revolution, and. Uh, most of the major centers of immigration were in Europe to begin with, also in Asia. Uh, you had about 200,000 Russians in Paris by the end of the 1920s. You had hundreds of thousands of Russians in Shanghai and Harbin and, and Chita and uh, in, in uh, the East and um, uh, a great number of Russians in Berlin. But of course, those in Berlin were forced to flee again with the coming of the Nazis. They came to Paris and in Paris, they were forced again to flee when the, the Nazis reached Paris. And um, many, many people did end up in the United States, but not in the kinds of concentrations that you saw in Europe. You have two characters that come to mind because, you know, I have a affinity for classical music. And, you know, when I think about someone like Stravinsky and I think of someone like Shostakovich, you know, kind of like... Uh, great, great composers of the 20th century took very different paths, you know, yeah. um, both produced wonderful music, but just in very different contexts. And uh, those those two seem like there is two pathways here. And, yes. you know, you just wonder, you know, what what is is it belief that that drives you out the willingness to compromise? And- I, I think it's a it's a complicated question, uh, complete, not even a question so much as a formula. And uh, I don't think it's a visible formula. It happens deep in the soul. And the considerations are different for each person, how much they value safety how how reluctant they are to face change, how easy it is for them to reconcile themselves to an authority with which they may not be in total agreement, whether they think they can do more by staying than by going to help their fellow artists or their, their fellow citizens. All of those things um, factor into these decisions. They're very complicated decisions and uh, far be it for me to pass judgment on, on, on anyone. So there's... Two more wage, major waves, correct? So there's the post World War II wave, um, and then there's the '70s and on wave. Uh, mm-hmm. How would you classify those two waves? Well, it, it, interesting that each one of them um, has a different set of motivations. So I think that um, you had both, you know, the the factors in the first wave, the the ones who left uh, after 1917, were both 
existential. There was a, a real threat uh, to people's lives, as well as economic. Many of them lost their fortunes, needed to look elsewhere for, for stable footing. And, and a lot of the, the Russians who ended up here in the Los Angeles colony, the Hollywood colony, as, as they were called, and then went into acting and various other professions, there were quite a number of them also in the thousands. Those people were, were seeking economic health and stability and, and prosperity. And all the while, of course, dreaming of what had been and what they had lost. There is a great film, a really great, very uh, complex, ironic film called The Last Command uh, by Joseph von Sternberg, which is very much about this, the, the lives of the Hollywood Russians, uh, so-called, who um, are, you know, were once great generals, but are now reduced to working as extras of the studios. And that's supposedly inspired by uh, a, a real life a colonel turned extra named Theodore Lizhensky, who then opened a restaurant and did all kinds of things, tried his hand at everything. A very typical um, Hollywood white emigre of, of that period, trying to sell his Russianness, his you know Russian imperial past, uh, in order to make a living in New Hollywood. And it's um, hard too to track these track some of these people in Hollywood because they change their names, right? So, oh yeah, so to blend in, and so it it becomes a a game to figure out, uh, you know origins and uh, you know who's well yeah who. i mean Nat natalie wood is a good example of that you yes. know she exactly you know few people few people really know uh that natalie wood came from one of these uh russian immigrant families and uh was very faithful a uh, faithful member of the russian orthodox church and in fact attended services at the holy virgin uh holy virgin mary cathedral here in los angeles which was kind of built as a stage set for a film version of tolstoy's the cossacks but it became a real cathedral and was uh um attended by not only uh, natalie wood but also the daughter of the the mad monk rasputin maria rasputina who ended her days here as well as rahmaninoff and various well-known uh, artistic and literary figures let's let's transition and talk about uh where people settled in Los Angeles, and then what role uh, some of these Russian immigrants had. We've already talked about Hollywood, but let's maybe take uh, take a, a step back and just kind of look uh, look at the kind of general influence that Russian immigrants had in Los Angeles. Well, sure. Uh, in in the the glory days of the white emigration, the Russians settled in Hollywood, largely in Hollywood, as well as other parts on the west side and the east side but central Los Angeles and their communities was, was fairly dispersed. Los Angeles was a, a, a more flexible town economically mm. and socioeconomically then. So they, they lived all over the place. Um, so they didn't settle in dense, dense, dense pockets, like in some neighborhoods. Silver Lake, Silver Lake had a heavy, heavy, heavy population, a heavy concentration of, of Russians. And this is why the church uh, is in Silver Lake that, that um, you know, the, the, one of the oldest Orthodox churches is in Silver Lake. That's where the services are attended. It's a beautiful building. If, if uh, ever anyone who's listening to this has a chance to visit it on Mikult Arena, it's really worth seeing. The second wave, these are the people we didn't get a chance to talk about, the no, people who came after the, the, the Second World War, who were also fleeing, in, in many cases, a certain death. Many of them had been prisoners of war. Uh, who had been part of the uh, Russian, the, the Soviet army and captured by the Germans or gave themselves up. Some of them had collaborated with the Germans in the hope of liberating Russia from Bolshevism. Uh, the, after the end of the war, they en ended up in displaced persons camps. Some of them were you know, very much ethnic minorities. And if they were to be returned to the Soviet Union, they would be executed on the spot, chances were. 
Yeah. Uh, And the great book on that, right, is Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder. That's right. You know, I think that's a great if you want an introduction to kind of because I think people think (laughs) they think the end of World War Two and they see that picture of the, uh, you know, the sailor kissing the woman in New York City and just think it was happily ever after hunky dory yeah, yeah just it it quickly descended into something else very quickly but anyway, a lot of reprisals a, a lot of reprisals a lot of bloodletting absolutely uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh new purges so so many of these these people with you know so, sometimes quite blemished pasts ended up in the united states after years in dp camps and uh settled some of them settled in los angeles um one of my favorite poets of the russian language poets uh, in Los Angeles uh, is Vladislav Ellis, who uh, passed away years ago. He came through that that difficult period in a DP camp, managed to get to the West rather than than be repat- repatriated, and ended up in Los Angeles um, uh, working as a construction engineer, very successful construction engineer, and writing brilliant poems. Some of the poems touching on the that checkered past, you know, about uh, the lies that some of these emigres told about their war. Uh, record. And uh, uh, of course, um, he was a profoundly, it seems to me, honest man who didn't shy away from from the, the darker realities of his own past, of his own life. A very, a very interesting poet, um, one of my very favorite uh, Russian language poets in Los Angeles. But all of these people also settled uh, higgledy-piggledy here and there. There there wasn't really much of a, of a center to their community. Whereas the third wave, the people who began to, to come in the 1970s, picking up pace in the 1980s uh, and towards the end of that period, as the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, was near, there were about 20,000 people from the Soviet Union coming into uh, Southern California a year. And um, a lot of those people did settle in a particular place, which was West Hollywood. In fact, where where I'm speaking to you now, I'm right at the heart, the center, the, the, the no longer vital pulse, but, but you still feel the pulse of Russianness here uh, at the intersection of Fairfax and Santa Monica, and a Plummer Park, which is a park just just down the street on Santa Monica, um, all the little stores with the Cyrillic lettering, the Russian names, uh, these these uh, still exist here on Santa Monica, and this was really the 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 core of the community of of that third wave. Did the Russian immigrants that were coming to Los Angeles did they face uh, prejudice um, and discrimination? Or were they more able than other ethnic communities to blend in? Well, there was, uh, I could speak from my experience as a person of eight uh, coming to the United States and then rolling in uh, public school. Uh, uh, it, was, it was difficult for, for, uh, for us. We didn't have the language, although the schools were very mixed. These were inner city schools, extremely diverse. You know, for at least a couple of years, the Russians were the target of all the bullying because where uh, the Russian speakers were the target targets of, of, of all the bullying because we were the most different. We stood apart the most. But of course, with time, we, we blended in. We, we found our ways into various other communities. The hazing didn't last you know, for, for too long. I don't think it was necessarily easier. Uh, the, for some, it was a little bit easier because, of course, uh, um, many of our parents were well-educated. And uh, with, with a language barrier that wasn't so difficult to over, overcome with time, they were able to find jobs in uh, technical fields and get, get uh, ahead in life uh, perhaps a little bit more quickly than, than um, members of some other communities um, arriving from, from uh, places where the education level wasn't quite so high. 
Let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the more influential uh, Russian immigrants to Los Angeles that you'd like to talk about. We've already brought up Stravinsky. Uh, we, uh, you brought up uh, what, uh, the poet's name that just jumped Ellis. out. Ellis. Yeah. Ellis. Um, we it's talked not, about a very, not a very Russian sounding name. Is it? Yeah, it isn't. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then Natalie Wood, of course. Um, but who are some other uh, influential Russian immigrants um, that people should know that uh, played a role in Los Angeles's history? Well, I, I think uh, there are any number of composers. We we spoke about Rachmaninoff. I mean, Rachmaninoff was a was I think a, a, a very important member of the Russophone community here in Los Angeles. Left his mark. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes about uh, him concerns another emigre from the former Russian Empire, Alan Azimova, who was one of the first great well-known screen stars in Hollywood. So well known that she was able to build an enormous uh, um, palace for herself called the Garden of Allah. That hotel, the Garden of Allah, in 1920s and 1930s, um, especially the 30s, was home to every famous person from the East you can think of, from F. Scott Fitzgerald to Dorothy Parker to, to the Marx Brothers. And one of my favorite anecdotes is that uh, Harpo Marx um, was in, in one of the bungalows, and he, he just couldn't stand this uh, awful musician who was, for some reason, put in the room right next to his uh, hand away at his piano day and day, uh, day in and day, day out. It turned out it was Rachmaninoff. So his revenge was to play one of Rachmaninoff's own compositions as loudly as he could. So and then Rachmaninoff complained and to a different room. Yeah, it's just, a, you know, the, the Los Angeles uh, Russophone history is full of these little strange in intersections uh, between Nazimova, uh, Akhmatova, and the Marx Brothers. Some other people that I, I, I think deserve to be better known um, are Vernon Duke. Vernon Duke was a great composer of popular song under the name Vernon Duke. Again, doesn't sound very, very uh, Russian, but his real name was Vladimir Dukelsky. He uh, was uh, born in um, what is now Belarus and educated in Ukraine, fled uh, as a young man um, after the revolution wound up in Constantinople writing poems, avant-garde poems with a group of young, fevered surrealists, but eventually made his way to the United States and in the United States became a, a well-known songwriter as well as a classical composer. He would compose classical music under his Russian name, it sounded more legitimate, and would compose popular songs like April in Paris under his uh, American name, which was suggested to him by, uh, by uh, George Gershwin another person who changed his name in order to have a little bit more authority in the English-speaking world. And uh, Dukelsky ended up in Los Angeles. He was a real bon vivant. He loved life. So our typical image of emigres uh, is that they are dour and nostalgic and bitter and smoke a lot. And, you know, perhaps Duke smoked a lot, but he loved life. He just relished, uh, you know, uh, everything that he saw here. One of the poems in my little book is a translation of, of his uh, homage to the farmer's market at Third and Fairfax here in Los Angeles, which was also a favorite spot for Stravinsky. Something about Russian composers and delicious food, I don't know. Let's, let's kind of pivot and talk a little bit about poetry in Los Angeles. Um, I've had a, a, a few poets on to talk about the history of poetry in California. And what tends to happen is just given the history of California and, and, and the beat movement and a lot of things that took place in the Bay Area, a lot of the concentration has been around uh, Northern California and poetry, uh, but Los Angeles has just as much of a vibrant uh, history of poetry that the Bay Area does, even if it's less known. So can you talk for a little bit about uh, how you see uh, the history of poetry in Los Angeles and uh, what are some of the highlights for you? 
Yeah, I, I, I would love to. Uh, thanks for asking. I, I think that uh, you, you're right to, to characterize the Bay Area as being more concentrated. I think that it, it like a magnet, uh, Northern California drew some of the finest talents from, from Los Angeles. When we think of uh, perhaps one of the greatest poets of uh, um, Calif- California, uh, Robinson Jeffers, we don't really think of Los Angeles, but Los Angeles was his first home and uh, where he received his education. But of course, as soon as he could, he uh, got up there um, to, to the coast. The same goes for, for even earlier uh, talents uh, like Nora Mae French, um, a, a lyricist of great power, a really original voice who unfortunately died young, took her own life and did so in Northern California. But she was a, she was a Los Angeles poet. Hildegard Flanner, uh, uh, also a, a wonderful poet, also, you know, Los Angeles reared, but uh, made her name up North. So I, I think that uh, there was something about the, the concentration in Northern California, the ability to build communities, construct literary communities that were self-supporting, self-sustaining, um, that drew people from Los Angeles. Los Angeles being, by its very nature, decentered. I think that's one of its charms, has continued to struggle to have a centralized scene. But I think that, that uh, that's not necessarily... That, that hasn't necessarily harmed Los Angeles poetry. The fact that poets here often work in isolation or work in small groups on one side of town, completely oblivious to what goes on on the other side of town, creates a, a, a number of interesting effects. You have somebody like Bukowski delivering, you know, mail by day and writing his bitter Baudelarian free verse uh, at night. You have people at Beyond Baroque uh, writing poems that are, um, you know, half punk, half blues, half something else. You uh, the, giving rise to a kind of oral poetic tradition as well as a written tradition. You have the same thing that you had in in um, the Bay Area, a beatnik scene called Venice West. Unfortunately, not so uh, productive, but uh, very interesting while it lasted. And um, uh, there's a, a great book about it by Lawrence Lipton called The Holy Barbarians. Very fun book. I'm not sure much of the poetry is any good, but, you know, they wrote it anyway. And, and uh, there were other clusters, very interesting clusters of left-leaning poets, very socially conscious poets around uh, the uh, Cal State LA campus who produced for a number of years uh, some great journals, a, a journal called Coastlines. Out of that group, um, you had first-ranked talents like Thomas McGrath, who was the center of the group, but also uh, younger poets like Henry Coulette, who developed into what I think uh, is, is um, you know, one of the great poetic voices of Los Angeles. He also, unfortunately, um, didn't live as long as, as he should have, died in the 1980s, and uh, had some bad luck um, in terms of publishing his, um, his collections. Uh, but uh, luckily, he had two very good friends, Donald Justice and Robert Mezzi, who uh, gathered his poems into one volume. And that, that would be a, a book I would like to see in every Angelino household. Uh, the collected poems of Henry Coulette. He's a, a really a, a, a great a mirror for the city. As a teacher later on, he taught Wanda Coleman. So you had the development of other traditions, you know, right in the same place um, at, at Cal State LA, you had the development of other traditions in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And uh, although there isn't, um, it's, it's, it would be hard to write a coherent history of Los Angeles poetry, that is not necessarily uh, that is not necessarily a critique of it, uh, because I, I think it's just too various um, and too variegated uh, to be summed up uh, in any neat history. 
Well, and that's what makes Los Angeles so wonderful is just that, you know, things are allowed to grow in their own environment, you know, uh, almost Precisely like mi right. microclimates. Um, but maybe then that's part of the problem from a marketing standpoint of like, you know, there's, if there's one main movement, you know, everyone consolidates around. Yes, it. exactly. So, and so then, then that gets marketed, you know, in the Lawrence Ferlinghetti sense of sent out to the world, like this is what Bay Area poetry is versus Los Angeles, where you have all these experimental things going on in different pockets. That's right. Um, but it, it, if it, 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 there must be something that ties them together too, in some ways. And, you know, I, I also wonder about the shadow of Hollywood and how that yes. played in, 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 in maybe preventing there from being a consolidation. Um, do you think Hollywood stood in the way of the uh, LA poetry scene uh, gaining prominence? I don't think so. I think, well, I, I think as, as the big cultural industry in town, of course, it, it sucks a little air out of every other room. But I don't think that's really what kept LA poetry from flowering. I, I think it has more to do with the, the just the sprawl of the city, the, the fact that uh, there isn't a hub, a single hub that can draw all the poets together, and also the, the diversity of the poets, uh, both stylistically and in terms of background, in terms of interest. Uh, they find their own clusters, but there isn't a New York school you can speak of in Los Angeles. There's no Los Angeles school. And as I say, I think that, that that's um, ultimately to, to, to the good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, your new book, uh, My, My Hollywood and Other Poems. Uh, what, do, what does your Hollywood look like? Well, my Hollywood looks an awful lot like what I uh, was describing a little um, bit earlier, which is the this little stretch of Santa Monica and Fairfax. That's that's where a great many of the poems in the book uh, are set. I say a great many, but the book is very short, so a great many isn't saying a lot. I also connect with the history that we've been discussing, the, the history of Russian Hollywood's past, Russophone Hollywood's past, everything from Nazimova um, to uh, Stravinsky to... Uh, these translations that I've included of Vladislav Ellis and Vernon Duke's Russian poetry. And of course, I also talk a little bit about my uh, own background here. I show a little bit more of myself than, than I'm, I'm uh, usually showing and uh, think through the, the effect of immigration, think through what binds us as, as emigrants from the former Soviet Union with other uh, emigrate communities here in Los Angeles and throughout the world and, and uh, th certainly throughout U.S. history, the, the pleasures and pains of making a new home. So that, that, that really is what I, I, I try to, to tackle, but I do it as lightly as I can because that's my nature. And so the book has some of uh, your original poetry and other, um, other, uh, other translations in, in it as well? Yeah, it's 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 largely my own my own work, uh, my original poems. But there's a small section uh, called Russian Hollywood in which I translate the work of five uh, Russophone poets. Uh, two of them um, are Armenian. Um, there's also a very large Armenian population here in Los Angeles, as we know. Um, at, at least half of which is is Russophone, and um, so I, I try to bring all of these voices together. Uh, <coughs> For a prismatic effect, um, and find myself among them. That's interesting, and I, you know, I was going to bring up uh, Armenian community at some point, and you know, kind of the relationship between the Russophone community that we've talked about and the Armenian community, because there's there's some there's some maybe some cultural differences there um, that maybe don't tie them as closely together as um, you know different Russophone communities. Would you say? 
There are. I mean, uh, I think we're talking about two two uh, groups. Uh, you know, we call it the Armenian community, and of course, what um, unites them is our. Uh, their Armenian identity, but many of them have are descendants of Western Armenians, people who uh, have lived in, in, in the West, not under Soviet rule for um, 75 years. Others come from uh, Armenia uh, proper, who uh, grew up under Soviet rule. Uh, you know, the, there are a lot of cultural differences and, and linguistic differences between these two groups, but they have more in common between them than, than let's say you know uh, they have with with uh, other communities. Um, however, the the Ar Armenians who did um, um, come out of the Soviet Union also have a lot in common with other emigrants from the former Soviet Union. A shared mega culture, monoculture, uh, a shared language as well. Many of them speak Russian. Um, they speak it as fluently as they speak Armenian. So there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of interactions. And uh, growing up, I had a lot of Armenian friends at UCLA. I certainly had a lot of Armenian friends, both Eastern and Western, and uh, they've uh, enriched my life immeasurably. A few more topics before we close up. Let's talk a little bit about um, editing the LA Review of Books and that's what that's taught you about. Uh, the California uh, writing scene and uh, that community. Um, you know, often when people want to uh, get into writing careers or pursue writing, they move east. Um, mm -hmm. But this is a Western outlet. So uh, what, what makes the LA Review of Books distinct? Well, I think what makes it distinct is that we're really open to voices from all over the world, which is part and parcel, I think, of the Los Angeles ethos. Uh, Los Angeles is very much a global town. In a way, a bit in a way that I, you know, said that when I was a, a child, I was an Odessan first. Well, I think Angelinos are also cosmopolitan in that way, just by by nature of of uh, how diverse uh, the city is and how many immigrant communities have found a home here, and how transitory it is as well. Um, it, you know, there's a sadness to that. There's a sadness to the fact that there are so few real natives here, and that people come and go, pass through town. But there's also great beauty in that. There's great beauty in what they leave behind, the, the, the traces of, of so many cultures and so many interesting backgrounds. Uh, it's a real palimpsest. And I think that, that uh, my vision for the LA Review of Books uh, that I share with uh, our, my fellow editors is to create a space like that on the, on the internet that seems to be opened to, in all directions. And it also has taught me to appreciate um, just how diverse the LA literary scene is, that it is uh, itself a microcosm of, of the city, um, that there are people writing in so many different ways and so many different voices with so many different interests. I don't wanna shut any of them out. Uh, I wanna make sure that we have a, a, a space in which they can harmonize their voices. So my goal as an editor has always been not to dull a voice, not to make it conform to any sort of house style, but to make it sing more purely um, to uh, help it um, sound like its best self, um, which could be a very different uh, version of a voice from, from my own voice and, and from the voices of others that we feature on even the same day. Yeah, it kind of, and I don't want to slip into stereotyping, but it kind of reminds me, I just, a few months ago, I read, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the book, um, but it was a book written by one of the head copy editors at the New Yorker. Um, and the kind of 
um, very intense approach to style and structure and top down, you know, it kind of, it feels in contrast to what you're describing, which is maybe what California is for a lot of people, which is experimenting with uh, new identities, new voices, new uh, ways of seeing the world that uh, kind of makes California distinctive. Would you say that's an accurate uh, characterization? I would say very much so. Absolutely. Yeah. I endorse that. Okay. Uh, Just two more topics before we close. I wanted to have an opportunity to just talk a little bit about current events for a few moments, um, because I think it's obviously quite relevant to what we're talking about. And I, I, you know, it's very possible given what's going on, we're, you know, in the middle of uh, the next phase of immigration to the United States. And there's already many refugees that have arrived. And, you know, of course, I want to say, I'm so sorry what's happening um, in Ukraine. And um, I'm, you know, not as a up to date with what's going on in Odessa. I mean, obviously there's some other cities that are uh, kind of right in the center of the, of the cannon fire, um, if you will, um, that mm-hmm. I'm more updated on, but um, can you, uh, can you give me um, your, your kind of picture of what's going on? I know that's a really big question and yeah. you go a lot of directions, but um, can you give me your picture of what's going on? Well, um, it, it is, a, it is a, obviously a, a big question. I don't think there's one coherent picture. I will say that, um, it does feel to um, most people from Ukraine, regardless of their ethnicity. Uh, I myself come from a Russian-speaking Jewish family uh, from from Odessa, but I I feel completely Ukrainian. Not just in this, but have so have felt um, that over the past uh, thirty years, the the more that Ukraine has tried to um, establish itself uh, as a modern, multilingual, multi-ethnic, democratic state the more pride I think um, people from Ukraine, both living in Ukraine and living abroad, have taken in their country. It's really been a remarkable journey and a very difficult one because of course Ukraine, as you know from Timothy Snyder's book, um, has been a land devastated by successive waves of of genocidal mania. Also uh, has been depopulated and repopulated uh, in very crude ways um, by the empires on either side of it. Despite all of that, Uh, perhaps because of all of that, um, they have worked tirelessly and fearlessly to establish themselves as a a modern state. It's been a dream of Ukrainians for centuries. And uh, and they were so close to realizing that dream, in fact, had realized that dream, just to have it snatched away from them yet again uh, by this this eight-year war uh, and this recent escalation, this full-scale invasion. So the, the picture is of a people who are completely resolute, united in a way that, that uh, we seldom see um, these days, looking past whatever differences they may have in order to achieve the main thing, which is freedom and independence. Yeah. And I think people, if, if you don't follow what's going on in that part of the world, you might see this as an isolated incident, as opposed to the beginning of with the annexation of Crimea being kind of the... F- Maybe the first uh, first stage in this uh, this war with definite hot spikes, and so for for you this is this is an ongoing conflict, and you see it as starting with the annexation of Crimea and then continuing to now. Even or, even uh, before even that, than that, yeah, maybe. yeah, I, I I agree. I think that in terms of a of a hot conflict, yes, it, it started with the annexation of Crimea and the incursion into eastern Ukraine uh, as a result of the uh, Euromaidan uh, revolution of dignity, but. 
it, it predates that. It predates that because uh, the Putin regime has been meddling in Ukrainian politics for, for, for decades. People have been poisoned. People have been uh, killed. Political leaders, I mean, uh, journalists. And so it, it, I think that it's, it, it is a longer history, of course. And, and you can take it all the way back to the Russian Empire. Uh, you can take it all the way back to the uh, horrid jokes about Ukrainians that circulated in the Soviet Union. Um, where in fact Ukrainians were regarded, you know, as as even lower than, and this is saying a lot, than Jews. <laughs> you know, the Jewish jokes were were pretty vicious, but um, Ukrainian jokes were perhaps most vicious of all. That that has to do with old Russian biases against Ukrainians. For for someone that's trying to stay abreast of what's going on, uh, what would you say the best approach would that to that would be? Well, I think the the. Oh, that's a very, very good question. I mean, I th- I think that you you can do worse than than um, uh, reading books uh, about Ukrainian history. I think that that that's a good place to start. Uh, some of the more accessible books uh, that I can recommend, Sergei Plohi's book uh, "The Gates of Europe" is is a very good introduction to the to the theme. I would say listening to Ukrainians, uh, they have by and large not been dissembling and not not uh, not been uh, uh, lying about their past uh, but but telling it like it is and i think that one thing to remember is that we don't want necessarily uh, to go into the game of contesting histories and saying well what came first was it kievan rus was that connected to moscow what how is it connected to moscow is moscow the tr- these are games that putin likes to play but they're 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 futile because really what we do have now is is international law and yeah. a, a country internationally recognized as existing where ukraine exists with ukraine's borders some speculations about the ancient past of the east slavic peoples cannot change general consensus that we've formed as as a globe that this is Ukrainian territory, Ukrainian land, where Ukrainians are living in peace, uh, deserve to continue to live in peace. Yeah, and I, I, like many people, I read that that speech that Putin gave, where he charted his 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 understanding of of history. It, it certainly was interesting to read. I I feel like going back to my mind being flat. <laughs> I was missing some key pieces in there to understand what's going on. Have you read that speech, and how do you how do you perceive it? Well, I, I think uh, it um, uh, suffers from uh, the sin of omission. I, I think that the, it is a complicated history. The truth is that if, if you wanted to go back to the history of Kievan Rus as the root of, let's say, what Putin thinks of as Russian culture, you have a little bit of a problem because there's a big gap during the Tatar-Mongol yoke and, and, and that period, of, you know, several hundred years, between Kiev and Rus and Moscow, and that gap is very hard to bridge. It's a tenuous link between these two statelets. Whereas you have a continuous history of people living in what was Kiev and Rus, uh, and who are now Ukrainians. <laughs> you know, so you have a continuous political history in this place, and then you have this rather tenuous link to Moscow, and Moscow wants to claim this as, as the root of their civilization. That's perfectly fine, but um, you have some evidence to the contrary, both genetically and historically, uh, right there on the territory of Ukraine. It's not an easy story to summarize in a podcast. One thing we can be sure of is that there is a continuous history between Kiev and Rus and Ukraine, and it is as solid, if not significantly more solid, than the history of Kiev and Rus and, and uh, Moscow. 
Yes. And I, I honestly, I mean, you can read the New York Times or the LA Times all day, but I think you're right. And, and trying to give yourself context um, is probably the most important thing you can do. Yeah. Because, you know, you can read these articles and they'll give you in excruciating detail what's happening. But if you don't have an interpretive lens for it, I don't know how useful it is for you. I, I completely agree. I think we should just remind ourselves that, you know, this is a, a modern nation uh, and people were, were very happy to be living in it. Whatever grumbling they did about the person in charge, they could always vote that person out. Um, that's, that's where Ukraine had arrived through, lo- through a long struggle at a democracy. People were elected and then voted out of office if they didn't you know, suit the interests of the people. And that, of course, is, is um, the, the real problem for, um, for Putin. Okay, so we're going to finish today with uh, recommendations. There's going to be three layers of this. First recommendation is going to be books. Uh, we've already talked about some books, but I want to focus on uh, Russians in LA. And if you have some <laughs> book recommendations to guide people, uh, that we've already had so many book recommendations. If you're not reading, get started. Um, uh, the second, one of my favorite ways to learn about a culture is to eat their food. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit about uh, where, where, you know, if you want to get Russian food in LA, where you should go. And then lastly, um, you've already mentioned uh, the church in Silver Lake, but I want to talk about there's a there's a, a museum or two that might be worth visiting in some areas in Los Angeles. So let's I'll, I'll, I'll guide us through this. So let's start with books. OK, well, I would say that uh, I should start with a really uh, charming book uh, by Vernon Duke, if you want to know a little bit about that whole uh, history of um, the, the Russophone immigration, the first wave, and, and even the second wave, Passport to Paris. You, you, you can do no better than to um, listen to Vernon Duke tell the tale. Uh, it's, an, it's an old um, uh, book from 1955, but um, holds up really well. Um, so Passport to Paris, I would recommend. Uh, if you want to know about um, uh, the history of Russians in Hollywood on the screen, and also the history of, of Russians depicted by Hollywood, then there's a, an excellent book by a scholar named Harlow Robinson called Russians in Hollywood, Hollywood's Russians, Biography of an Image. Um, he summarizes and draws on a lot of sources uh, about um, the life of Russians in, in the film colony. Um, that's from 2007. In, in, in terms of you know, the, the poetry of these people, we'll go to my blog or, or buy my book. Uh, you'll, you'll hear their voices uh, uh, as, as best I can render them. And uh, before we move from book recommendations, uh, you've done some translation work. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that work? And, um, you know, I, I, I'm like a good educated American. I've read the Brothers Karamazov. I've read, I haven't read War and Peace. Uh, I love, I love me some, uh, some short stories. So I've, I've dipped into there, but um, maybe you can share some, uh, some, some Ukrainian literature or some literature and translation that uh, maybe is outside, you know, to use the classical word, the standard repertoire, you know, like something that we maybe overlook um, because it's not part of the canon that we're given. Sure. Uh, uh, I, I, think of uh, Ukrainian literature right now is undergoing a, a real renaissance, and uh, there are a great many translators working to render these um, new masterpieces into English. I'm not going to count myself among them, but there is a wonderful book. Uh, I, can, I can recommend the book, if not my translation, uh, by Andriy Kurkov, who is one of the um, loudest and most eloquent voices in defense of Ukrainian culture uh, working today. Uh, the book is called Grey Bees, and it's about the journey of a mild-mannered beekeeper from eastern Ukraine 
Russophone beekeeper who is now stuck between two armies, the Ukrainian army on the one hand and the separatists backed by the Russians on the other, and uh, makes his way down to Crimea, um, which is also occupied in the in the hope of of giving his bees um, a little bit more, a little bit more color, a little bit more uh, uh, food. And by taking this journey, he comes to realize just how Ukrainian he really is and uh, clarifies his own political stance and his own sense of, of the world ever so slowly. I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful narrative, um, a very charming book and, and a character with whom I could live for the rest of my life. So that's, that's a book I'd recommend. I'd also recommend the work of Serhi Jadan, who is a, a very, very prominent um, poet and prose author and musician in Ukraine, a, a multi-talented guy. Uh, incredibly brave right now is in Kharkiv and um, is defending the city with uh, arms in hand and uh, uh, also uh, finding time to write new poems. His latest novel available in, in, in English is The Orphanage, um, a really profoundly beautiful piece of work. Those are two books that um, w- would make for a good start. Let's talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, Russian food. Um, mm-hmm. I've been to a few places in kind of the Westwood area, but I haven't really, it's been a long time. Um, and I don't think people really, you know, I think when people think of Russian food, the word borscht comes in their head, but yeah. I, it's obviously a lot more complex than that. Um, can you uh, share some of your, maybe one or two of the places that you like to go to in town or familiar with? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, borscht and is now also a cultural, cultural war between Ukrainians and, and Russians, but, um, but we won't, we won't wade into the borscht war. Uh, let's, okay. let's, let's not talk about that. I will say that some of the best Ukrainian or Russian food in, in town, um, a mix of both, you'll find a traktir, which is on Crescent Heights and okay. Santa Monica great little restaurant. They should be paying me for all the advertisement I do for them. <laughs> and of course, uh, one of the ch- charms of it is that it's indoor, outdoor. Um, it's completely open uh, to the elements. And in Los Angeles, that is one of our great luxuries. Um, we can um, count on uh, any day being a good day for lunch outdoors. Um, so I, I would highly recommend. A lot of Russian restaurants are banquet style, uh, so it, it, it's a little harder to, to get a table for, for one or for two, but Traktir always has uh, a table for one or for, for two available. You can just dip in and, and have a nice meal. So that would be one of my, my, my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, before you go to Tender Greens one more time, you know, I think that's one of the ways to learn about a city is to, to go to different things. Where I am in Fresno, um, the I, I obviously eat a lot of Armenian food because there's a a large community here as well, but there's also um, just given kind of the environment here and the community, there's uh, really, really good Indian food here that I've explored yeah. because there's so many people that are coming from uh, the kind of Northwestern part of India that are migrating to the Central Valley to farm in the same way that they did there. And so there's just, you know, there's a lot to explore. And I think food is, is, is not a bad place to start. So um, let's, yeah. let's, end, let's, let's, uh, to jump in, let's, um, places that people should visit. So you mentioned uh, the cathedral, would you call it a cathedral in Silver Lake or is it? It's, it's called, it's called a cathedral, but it's, it's really uh, not such a large church. Okay. Um, but, but, but it is, yeah, it's, it's a, an interesting place uh, to visit, not only because it has such, uh, his, such deep historical roots here in LA, but also uh, two of my colleagues, um, two of my friends, 
have uh, been working on establishing a little museum in one of the rooms of mm-hmm. Russian culture in Los Angeles or Russian culture in Los Angeles. So they they're working really hard uh, on on that right now, and I hope that you know by by summertime it'll be uh, a much richer place than than um, than uh, it is now. Uh, although it's already very interesting. Wonderful. So let's close by talking about um, when your when your book is coming out uh, and where people can find your work. Sure. Uh, the book the book is coming out. Uh, well, it's it's out. The book is out uh, oh, this out. month. Okay. Yeah, yeah. April fifth uh, was the pub date, and uh, it's doing okay. I hope. Uh, I hope people are finding something to like in it. Certainly, uh, the response the responses I've I've been getting. Um, at my readings, uh, my very few readings have been uniformly positive. But then again, people don't like to insult, you know, insult poets to their face. Uh, at any rate, I, I I do hope that that you you have a look. It's out with um, uh, from Paul Dry Books uh, in Philadelphia, a great publisher. Um, I'm very honored to to be part of their list. And uh, you can find individual poems of mine uh, if you want a sampler in the latest Hudson Review. You can find uh, a couple. Uh, in uh, other journals as well, Raritan um, and um, New York Review of Books and um, Georgia Review and, and, and a variety of other places. You can you can also look up uh, my blog and uh, uh, see all of it there. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking to me. This was wonderful. And I, I learned a lot and it's been very helpful to, to give me some context and hopefully my, for my listeners too. Thank you very much. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating or review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.